You're listening to The Exchange on Siouxland Public Media. I'm Mary Hartnett. Today in the program, why Iowa's extreme drought is further damaging its water quality and what we can do about it. And the city of Sheldon is finally connected to a water system that serves northwest Iowa, South Dakota, and Minnesota. We find out about the goals of the Lewis and Clark Regional Water System. And winter has truly set in. Many of us are concerned about the health of our young trees and shrubs as small animals tend to nibble them for sustenance. We talk with an Iowa State University Extension Specialist about protecting trees and shrubs throughout the cold season. And we hear about a new initiative in Iowa to connect new immigrants to the foodways of their homeland by providing them with land to grow their traditional foods. But first, a look at the news. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds gave her seventh condition of the state address Tuesday night. She's asking lawmakers to enact a 3.5% flat income tax, overhaul special education services, and raise minimum salaries for teachers. Republican leaders who have large majority in the legislature say they support Reynolds' plan, but didn't commit to passing them without some changes. Senate Minority Leader Pam Yoakum says she hopes Democrats can work in a more bipartisan way on Reynolds' proposals. We need to see the actual bills, whether it is on tax policy, whether it is on AEAs, whether it is on raising teacher salaries. The devil is in the details. Yoakum says she's concerned that changes to the area education agencies could affect special education services in rural communities, and House Minority Leader Jennifer Confer says Reynolds' teacher pay raise plan should be expanded to help other school professionals. Minimum pay in Iowa would increase by 50 percent under that plan. It's aimed at helping Iowa compete with other states to recruit educators. In her speech, Reynolds asked lawmakers to increase the minimum salary allowed by state law from $33,500 to $50,000. Reynolds says that would put Iowa among the top five states for initial teacher pay. We want younger Iowans to see the teaching profession as something to aspire to. It's one of the highest callings one can have. So let's make sure that teacher pay sends that message. Under Reynolds' plan, teachers with 12 years of experience would have to be paid at least $62,000 per year. She also plans to use $10 million from federal pandemic relief funding to create an incentive fund to reward teachers who have done great work. The governor is also proposing a new literacy program for elementary school students that would require teachers to be trained in evidence-based instruction on the science of reading. As part of the bill, any student from 3rd through 6th grade who is not proficient in reading would receive a personalized reading plan. The bill would also require teachers to have a conversation with a student's parent or guardian at the end of the third grade if the student is not proficient in reading and allow the parent to choose whether the student should repeat third grade or advance to the fourth grade. In response to some of Reynolds' plans, Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart issued a statement accusing Reynolds of pushing to defund public schools and strip away Iowans' freedoms while Democrats, she says, remain focused on the real needs of our communities. And in other news this week, state climatologist Justin Glisson says 2023 is going down as one of Iowa's warmest and driest years in more than 150 years of record keeping. 
Glisten says when you average out the temperatures over 365 days, it's rare for Iowa's year-long average temperature to vary by even one degree above or below the previous year. But that changed during 2023. Glisten says we were over two degrees above the average for 2023, and that means the year is in the top 20 warmest years on record, going back to 1872. 2023 had 182 days of consecutive days of at least moderate drought in some parts of the state. The only corner of the state that recorded above average precipitation during 2023 was northwest Iowa, which saw between one and three inches more than the norm. However, the rest of the state was exceptionally dry. One University of Iowa engineering professor says extreme drought is posing concerns about water quality as well as water supply in Iowa. David Courtney is a professor of civil and environmental engineering and the director of the University of Iowa's Center for Health Effects of Environmental Contamination. Courtney says the problem with the drought is there is now a concentration of certain contaminants in some of Iowa's water. One way you can think of this is like when we tell people not to boil their water when there's say levels of nitrate that are high because all you end up doing is concentrating the nitrate. The water evaporates, the nitrate's left behind. You have a higher level of nitrate in in the water that's left behind. It's a similar phenomenon that can happen during drought. You know, if we have chemicals that don't break down over time, they're just going to keep accumulating, but in less water to make that, you know, they'll they'll be more concentrated, whereas more water would make them more dilute. And so that's one way to think of it, right, is that there can be challenges that as water levels are lower, contaminant concentrations can get higher. And that can be, you know, that can cause challenges. It could make water um, less available for use for things like drinking. What can we do about this particular issue with the drought and water quality? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing we want to do is is keep the, the things that we worry about out of the water in the first place, right? And so, you know, the other thing I often talk about, climate change and and, you know, and pollution as sort of amplifying stressors that one can kind of amplify the other. And, and one of the reasons I say that is because of what we just discussed, that there's the potential that, say, in drought and lower water levels, if the chemicals are still there, you're going to have more of them per volume of water, and that's a problem. But the other issue is that, like, we have periods of drought that then you know, at least we experience them here, and these are sort of predicted for Iowa, is more intense short-duration rainfalls that sort of come in a burst, right? And you can have these periods without a lot of rain and then like a heavy rainfall. And all that that heavy rainfall is doing is sort of washing off chemicals that might accumulate on land um, and and helping it move because of the, the greater intensity of those rainfalls into our waterways. And so... It really is just about protecting our source waters and making sure that that you know we're not allowing things that we we don't want in our water because of the risk they might pose to us if we consume them. Just trying to keep them out of there in the first place. So it, it, I guess it, it kind of emphasizes some of the challenges we have here in Iowa about what we do on our land very much impacts what ends up in our water, um, and if we you know if we're not careful <laughs> and. With the climate changing and, and things like drought, um, you know, we might have less of that water to begin with, and, and those chemicals that, that are on land will just cause more problems as our, our water quality deteriorates. Which contaminants are you most concerned about? 
So I think one, you know, one that gets a lot of attention in Iowa is something like nitrates. Uh, we have a lot of, of surface waters where we worry about the levels of nitrate because it's regulated in by the EPA for drinking water. And so when you think of places like uh, Des Moines and Des Moines Water Works, they operate a nitrate removal system. Um, you know, so we worry about how much nitrate is there in the first place. And again, nitrate is one of these chemical contaminants that uh, just because, say, things are warmer, you know, it's not breaking down, right? And so if there's a period of, of drought and, say, long stretches of, of hot weather that causes what little water we have to start kind of evaporating away, you know, you worry about what nitrate is there and that those levels are higher in the water that's left behind, and then the water systems have to work harder to remove it. And, and I, I mentioned that there was another story a while back about uh, a chemical that's not really relevant to things we worry about in Iowa, but a town actually had their water go from sort of safe to unsafe because the water levels decreased and concentrated the chemical in the first place. So nitrate's one that we worry about. You know, another one, um, we hear a lot about like algal blooms here in Iowa, and some algal blooms produce toxins that are referred to as microcystins. And that's where we, we think about things like harmful algal blooms, the type that actually produce these toxins. Um, that's another one of these chemicals that we have to worry about. Uh, we know those algal blooms are expected to increase with warming temperature. Um, similar sort of thing. If you have these chemicals that are being produced that, that are, we worry about and don't want to consume in our drinking water, you know, through drought, uh, changing climate, we're expecting to see more of those microcystin chemicals that can be problematic. And, and so these were the chemicals that shut down Toledo's water supply back in, I think, 2014, because we knew they were problematic. The Des Moines Water Works and the Des Moines River and the Raccoon River worries about those as well. So that's another one that we might need to be thinking about um, going forward here in Iowa, because we, we see evidence in places like Des Moines that we have water systems that are already struggling with them, and we expect the levels of those to increase you know, through a warming climate and under conditions, say, where, where there's less water available due to drought. There have been efforts, legislation at uh, improving Iowa's water quality. Uh, often uh, there are criticisms that it's really not well-funded by the state. The state does not put enough money into it. There have been some efforts that have been made. We do need more money put towards it. Um, I, you know, I think there's been some estimates by my colleagues in Iowa that sort of that indicate that the amount of money we're putting into things like conservation efforts on land or voluntary efforts to try to get people to, to put, you know, protect uh, source waters, just not enough money at the scale that we need. You know, the other issue is we just need uh, good monitoring and enforcement, right? I mean, we need to be able to understand how our water quality changes through time. And so, we also need to be making investments to be measuring the quality of our water across Iowa um, and, and, and doing it, knowing that we need to be more vigilant now than ever before because of these changes in things like uh, weather and climate. Um, you know, how does something like drought change the quality of our surface water? Um, how is it changing aquifers and groundwater levels and, and, and groundwater quality, particularly for people that use, say, shallow private wells where there might be... Um, challenges for them as, as water levels lower in, in periods of drought and their wells might dry up, you know, does the quality change as that water gets lower uh, due to the changing conditions and climate? Um, so, yeah, I think we need more investment and we need more holistic approach to sort of understand um, 
you know, the quality that, that is, is present in our surface and, and groundwater resources that we rely on, uh, you know, for drinking. Do you think that there is greater awareness now? Because I feel like there is more awareness. You know, I think there is. I see more and more, at least through people I interact with, that there's a lot of interest in wanting our our waterways to to be clean and and protected. Um, I think there's been high-profile instances, and say like with the Des Moines Water Works lawsuit, that sort of helped raise the issue of water quality to a very public, um, you know, level here in Iowa, which I guess is good that people are paying attention to it. Um, I think we need to do more to make sure that it um, that we make progress, that we just don't think about it and know it's an issue, but but do what we need to do to actually make progress to to keep our water safe and, and improve waters that are impaired. And um, you know, I think that's the next step that we haven't really figured out is you know what do we need to be doing to better protect our source waters in a changing climate in a state that has such heavy land use through agriculture um, that has aging infrastructure too, right? We know that it's not just always uh, runoff from, from land that's a problem. It could be, you know, poor, leaky sewer systems. Um, so things like that. We need to just make sure that we're, we're, we don't just stay aware and informed that we're actually making efforts to protect the water we have. That was David Courtney, a professor of civil and environmental engineering and the director of the University of Iowa Center for Health Effects of Environmental Contamination. He was talking about how drought in Iowa has led to a concentration of contaminants in many of our water systems. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. After nearly 34 years, the city of Sheldon is finally connected to a water system that serves northwest Iowa, South Dakota, and Minnesota. Troy Larson is the executive director of the Lewis and Clark Regional Water System. He says connecting to that water system is important for quality of life and the future of Sheldon in general. And what I mean by that is Sheldon, for the long-term growth of their community, simply they do not have enough water. And that is true not just of Sheldon, but other members of Lewis and Clark in Minnesota, Iowa, and South Dakota. The whole reason Lewis and Clark exists is to provide additional water resources to its 20 city members, uh, which are cities and rural water systems that are members. So for Sheldon, this is an additional 1.3 million gallons a day uh, of capacity. That will allow them future growth opportunities, being able to say yes to economic development when the opportunities come along instead of saying no. It will also mean their water quality is greatly increased because Sheldon has greatly struggled with water quality in the past. And this is a very high quality of water that when blended with their existing source, which is they're planning to do, uh, will greatly increase the quality of the water for their citizens. So again, it comes down to quality of life for their citizens, both through the quality of the water and expanded economic development opportunity for years to come. Especially with the drought that we've been having over the last few years, especially in northwest Iowa, this must be really important. Oh, absolutely. The the timing is perfect uh, because of the the drought. The community of Sheldon needs it now more than ever. And I'm sure they would have loved the water to arrive 10 years ago, but better late than never, as 
we say, and this has been 34 years in the making. Lewis and Clark was incorporated in January of 1990. The whole idea started in the late 80s. And so this has been a long time coming, but what we've been saying is it's certainly worth the wait. This is going to provide so much additional flexibility for the community in terms of their water resources. It'll provide additional reliability. If for some reason they had a problem with a well, uh, this is, is redundancy, and th that is something that communities strive for and, and want to achieve so that if something does happen, you've got a backup, and Sheldon now has that backup. Madison, South Dakota, and Sibley, Iowa, those apparently are the last two that will join. Is that right? Correct. 18 down, two to go. Madison should be connected by the summer of 2024, and then Sibley in the spring or summer of 2025. So we're getting close. Uh, light is at the end of the tunnel, but it's certainly a momentous occasion for Sheldon, and we want to celebrate them. I mean, this is, a, this is a game changer for the community in so many ways. It's a godsend to the community and its citizens, and we couldn't be more thrilled for them. The kudos to all the city leaders and staff that's worked on this project for 34 years. Uh, their perseverance has certainly paid off. That was Troy Larson, Executive Director of the Lewis and Clark Regional Water System, talking about how the city of Sheldon recently was finally connected to the water system that serves Northwest Iowa, South Dakota, and Minnesota. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. Well, Christmas is past. We're finally in the very cold part of January. And a lot of us are concerned about the effects of cold weather on our young trees and shrubs. Aaron Steele is a consumer horticulture specialist at Iowa State University Extension. He says the drought has been tough on our landscape this year, and some recent plantings of trees and shrubs may already be stressing as the colder weather settles in. He says there are some ways that you can help keep trees and shrubs strong throughout the winter. Yeah, yeah, young trees in particular um, often need a little bit of protection from things like rabbits and deer. Uh, they can, you know, winter is a tough time and sometimes there's very few things for those animals to eat and they will, uh, rabbits will strip the bark off of young trees because it's still relatively um, easy to do when it's thin and small like that. Um, and uh, deer will browse or eat on uh, evergreen plants that time of year too. And this damage can be really hard on a young tree or shrub, uh, which is why uh, preemptively putting up some protection is so beneficial. And I know that we've all seen like the little metal like cages on there. Is that the best thing to use? The best thing to do for either of these animals is exclusion. Um, and you can do that with a lot of different things. Fencing works, uh, hardware, cloth, or chipping wire fencing, um, even plastic, uh, hard plastic tubes can work really well for uh, keeping rabbits out. Um, hardware cloth and fencing can work well for deer as well. You just have to make sure for rabbits that it goes up high enough so that even if there's snow on the ground, they can't reach the trunk. So usually that's around 30, like if you buy 36 inch tall, fencing that usually does it. We usually don't have uh, that much snowpack on the ground. And for deer, um, it needs to go up at least six feet, or if the plant's not that tall, um, it can be closed on the top to keep them from uh, eating. Does it ever get to be just like so cold, like 20 below? Does that hurt a young tree especially? 
it can hurt trees, especially if they're under a lot of stress. And younger trees, newly planted trees, those that have been planted in the last year or two in particular, um, are under a lot of stress. And then you combine that with the fact that this last growing season, um, if you didn't do a lot of watering, you, your tree is probably um, a little drought stressed going into the winter. And you put all those things together and it can be a little harder um, on those plants. Mature trees um, that are hardy to our zone have no problem even when it gets pretty cold. But yeah, those younger plants that are still establishing root systems and um, uh, under some stress are could potentially see some tip dieback on branches or those types of things. And we wouldn't know that until spring came and uh, noticed that those parts of the plants didn't leave out. Yeah, well, there's not a lot you can really do about it, is there? No, there isn't. That's one of the things that uh, is kind of hard to talk about this uh, with folks because there isn't a lot you can do about it. It's really about prevention, making sure that trees go into winter well watered, making sure you put up protection like fencing so that you don't get damage from animals like deer or rabbits. And um, once the damage happens, apart from removing what's dead, you just have to kind of wait and see and hope that the tree can recover well. As you move into the spring, is there anything people, I guess, can do to help repair this damage or? Yeah, there's not much you can do to repair it. There's no, you know, fertilizer isn't going to make it repair faster or there are no tars or paints. And sometimes those things actually get in the way of the tree um, uh, sealing off the damage on its own. The best you can do is wait to see what happens. The tree is well equipped to uh, to seal up that damage. The hope is that there isn't so much that um, it doesn't kill the whole tree. So um, it's kind of a wait and see if you do see the damage. Um, if you do put the protection out though, spring is a great time to remove it. You don't want it on year round. Trees, especially young trees, grow very quickly. And it can be very easy to accidentally have the tree expand in diameter or size and get that material, whether it's fencing or some other, you know, uh, tube or wrap, um, kind of uh, constricting that growth. And so you want to remove it um, in probably about mid-spring, early to mid-spring, so that it doesn't cause that problem. That was Erin Steele, a consumer horticulture specialist at Iowa State University Extension Service, who talked about how we can keep young trees and shrubs healthy throughout the winter. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. Support for The Exchange comes from Gregory Giles, investment advisor representative with Legacy Financial LLC in Sioux City, serving the financial planning and investment needs of clients since 2004. Information about Legacy Financial and Greg Giles is available at LegacyFinancialLLC.com. Financial planning and advisory services offered through RDA Financial Network. Well, finally today in the program, we've heard a lot about water systems and growing trees and shrubs. And now we'll hear about an Eastern Iowa program that works to connect immigrant farmers with plots of land to farm. Emily Renshaw is the executive director of Feed Iowa First. It was launched way over in Lynn County in Eastern Iowa. The three-year community farming program aims to remove barriers to farmers who are growing what are considered to be culturally relevant foods. Renshaw says the program came about because of a boom in immigration in Lynn County. I would say Cedar Rapids has seen just a 
a huge movement of uh, new immigrant families who have settled here. So we've been kind of a hot spot for the Midwest of just, you know, affordable housing, um, just a good resettlement program. And so we have, um, I would say in the last like three or four years, it, it's like quadrupled, just the number of, of families who are immigrating into the area. And especially we're starting to get a lot, a lot of what's considered tier one immigrants or immigrants who are, are, are coming in directly from their home countries or, or from refugee camps. And so, you know, prior to this, we had a lot of families who would immigrate into larger cities like New York and Chicago, spend a couple years there, kind of get acclimated and then join family who was in Iowa. So that's kind of been a big shift too, where, you know, for them, this is a, a brand new experience. Um, and it, I, I guess I'll back up. How we got started in it was during COVID, uh, we had a couple of farmers who had immigrated into the area come out and just volunteer with us, right? Everyone was stir crazy. Um, we still had volunteer opportunities because we were outside in the field. And we just had an opportunity to, to have some space to kind of listen to their, their stories and their journeys. And, and part of that is we had a family who uh, was volunteering with us from Liberia. And they talked about, like, how they had to go to Minneapolis to buy their native eggplant. And that was, you know, um, the closest place they could go. And when COVID hit, um, those farmers' markets closed down. And so access for, for them were, was completely denied. And so, you know, at that point, I think just growing up in Iowa um, and doing what we do, you know, I kind of stopped and I said, wait, like, do you drive eight hours round trip? for eggplant and he was like yeah of course Emily he's like this is foundational to to all of our meals to our health um to what we know how we connect with our culture and our community so he's like we can grow this we have the seeds but we cannot find land here to grow the foods that we need and that's where we really started to kind of turn the wheels and be like okay if we can get you land and water access you know what else do you need? And that was really kind of the genesis of our um, land access program here in Cedar Rapids. And what kind of success uh, have you had with this? So land access is critical, right, across Iowa. So between us and Mugisha, who has another nonprofit, and he works specifically with the African community, um, I bet there's 30 or 40 on the wait list waiting for any size of land, you know, if it's a 20 by 20 plot. Um, our community gardens have a wait list on them. Um, you know, it's just, it's so difficult to procure um, a land that has a hydra on it. And that's just across Iowa, right? Um, but what we have seen in our program is most of these farmers, we start them out with about a third to a half acre. So it's not a lot of land. Um, but they're producing tens of thousands of pounds of culturally relevant or culturally appropriate food. So we're able to, to also procure through them through the state LFPA program. And it is so interesting to me because, like, we're just starting to understand, like, the food gaps that we have in our community, right? So for one example is we had, uh, there was actually kind of funny story. There was a miscommunication between one of the farmers we work with and KCAP was in their food reservoir. They were buying um, habanero peppers from this farmer. And they thought they were buying 100 pounds. And communication line got crossed. They bought 1,000 pounds. <laughs> and so they called us, and they're like, there's no way we can move these through our pantry. 
And I'm like, no, you can't. We know that, you know, they move very well here. Um, but they're like, pantries won't, won't accept them. There's like an educational component there, right? And so we took them and we moved them in three and a half days. And so, you know, for us, that just speaks to like how large these food gaps are that we're just starting to become aware of, especially through like a lot of our immigrant and refugee communities. Well, I know that you operate out there in, in Lynn County, over here in Woodbury County, certainly around Sioux City. We have so many immigrants from, you know, similar countries to the ones that you were talking about. How hard do you think it would be to start up something like that here in Woodbury County? Yeah, that's a good question. And our program's a little different that, um, so there's a similar program in Johnson County called Grow Johnson County. And that's a farm incubation program. And so their goal is to teach people to farm. Ours is a little different is we work with people who have those farming skills already. Like these are individuals who are professional farmers in their home country. And so we put a lot of effort into like uh, training and certification, right? FISMA certifications, food safety certifications, um, you know, all those things you need to do to also be able to sell your product, where you sell it, your marketing, invoicing is a, a huge gap. And so we have a pretty extensive program in that sense that we have like full farming and business support. But really what it comes down to is it's as simple as land access with water. And that's something we've been working really hard with the city. Um, Cedar Rapids is on this garden expansion plan. And they were like, we're going to put in gardens, you know, every 15 minute walkable, um, you know, every 15 minutes, of walkable pace, like you should be able to access a community garden. And we're like, well, that's great. But if you don't have water on site for individuals who are working 40 and 50 hours a week and may or may not have transportation, that's a, that's a huge barrier. That was Emily Renshaw, the executive director of Feed Iowa First. It was launched in Lynn County. The three-year community farming program aims to remove barriers to farmers who are growing what are considered to be culturally relevant foods. Most of them are immigrants. This is Siouxland Public Media. Coming up next, we have one of the first editions of our new program called The Second Half, where we take an in-depth look at subjects like politics, art, culture, health, education, and more. Stay tuned. You're listening to the second half on Siouxland Public Media. Each week on the program, we take an in-depth look at a series of issues that affect all of our lives. Today, we're talking about health issues. One of them is our addiction to sugar. But first, we talk with a Minneapolis-based psychiatrist about schizophrenia, one of the most misunderstood of all mental illnesses. Dr. Stephen Lesk takes an in-depth look at this illness in his book, Footprints of Schizophrenia, the Evolutionary Roots of Mental Illness. Lesk presents a groundbreaking theory that weaves evolutionary evidence with neurological findings. He hopes to forever change the lives of the mentally ill. His primitive organization theory has its basis in human evolution. 
Lesk says schizophrenia is not an uncommon disease. In fact, it affects at least 1% of people worldwide, and it crosses all boundaries of race and gender. In your book, you suggest that schizophrenia has a connection to evolution. Can you explain, just in layman terms, what that is? Homo sapiens, for whatever reason, were extremely adept at language. The other uh, species of Homo weren't, like the Neanderthals, because they had a, a voice box that didn't produce as many sounds. The Naledi, the Denisovans. By 10,000 BC, we'd wiped them all out, and we fanned out across the globe. Now we own the world. I mean, this was a radical change in how we use our minds, which involves dopamine, and we're still in this... Uh, evolutionary moment of transition. And not everyone is on board with it yet. And those who are least on board with it are the ones we call mentally ill. Could you talk a little bit about the role of dopamine? Because so many illnesses today, dopamine is mentioned as, as part of the issue. Right. And the reason for that is that we changed our relationship with dopamine entirely once we got language. Uh, dopamine is a reward chemical. And it was used by evolution, in a sense, to reward behaviors that were uh, evolutionarily uh, beneficial, like uh, hunting and gathering, uh, finding a mace, a mate, uh, protecting oneself against a uh, predator. You would get a, an injection of dopamine, in essence, in your brain to reward that. But once we got language and could use conscious thought, we didn't really need that reward. We could decide for ourselves what was advantageous and what wasn't. So the process of language is a process of dopamine suppression. It's not to say that it isn't still a reward chemical, but what we do is suppress dopamine in two of the tracks that we could not suppress it in before. But once we got language, we could suppress dopamine in these other tracks. And that is the standard, the gold standard of where we're at. But with mental illness, there's a backflow or a desuppression of dopamine that marks every single mental illness. And all the medications we use attempt to reverse that. You say that there is no other theory of schizophrenia. People talk about it, uh, about chemical imbalance, it's genetic connectivity. And you say that is kind of meaningless at this point. Well, you know, they're just catchphrases. Uh, you know, when I was a resident uh, back in the 80s, I would listen to my attending psychiatrist talk to families who came in, you know, with a relative who's been diagnosed schizophrenic. And of course, the first thing they ask is, what is schizophrenia? And the answers I heard, you know, a chemical imbalance, it's genetic, they're really so superficial that uh, at some point I decided, you know, being kind of a dyed-in-the-wool nerd that I would try to uh, come up with something deeper and more satisfying. And to do that, I kind of broadened my knowledge base. I read a lot of anthropology. I read more about evolution, developmental psychology. And I came up with a theory that I think is the most complete and answers the principal questions about schizophrenia better than any other. Where do we go from here then? Because it does seem like for people suffering with schizophrenia, families with a family member who has it, life is pretty difficult sometimes. They're looking probably for some answers. Right. At this time, what we have are medications that do work. They're very helpful, and schizophrenics will need to be on them for the rest of their lives. Uh, the problem is 
They have a tremendous amount of side effects. One medication may be great for one person and terrible for another, and we don't know until we try them. Uh, they cause all kinds of problems like weight gain, um, muscle spasms, uh, clozapine, which is the best medication. You need a blood test every single week. So we need to do better with our medications, and that comes from a deeper understanding of the illness we treat. Psychiatrists sit in offices treating an illness they don't understand with medications they don't truly understand, and the results aren't, uh, aren't good enough. I think we can do a lot better. You're listening to the second half on Siouxland Public Media. I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Lesk, a psychiatrist from Minneapolis, about schizophrenia and ways to treat it and some of his new ideas in his new book called Footprints of Schizophrenia, The Evolutionary Roots of Mental Illness. So this is significantly different, say, than uh, how doctors treat depression or obsessive compulsive disorder. It's usually when they talk about that and, and people who take medication for that, there's like an understanding of what's going on. My theory uh, is different and also touches upon those illnesses as well. It encapsulates all the mental illnesses, but um, we don't have medications that are guaranteed to work. And we often rely on uh, pulling together groups of medications to try to get a good result. We often fail. Uh, one third of our patients don't respond to antidepressants. But, you know, I'm not trying to give the impression that we don't help a lot of people. We help an awful lot of people. But I'm just saying we could do better. And I think with greater understanding, we can refocus our research efforts. And we can also reduce stigma. Something like schizophrenia, you know, because of the lack of understanding, is prone to some very crazy explanations like uh, possession by the devil or some infection that you could catch. Or the schizophrenics are very gentle people. They're not murderers. They're not contagious. Uh, but they're caught, and I call them evolution's dispossessed. We're in an evolutionary moment where this is happening because of language and the change in our relationship to dopamine. And that doesn't only affect mental illnesses. I think uh, physical illnesses like Parkinson's, uh, Tourette's, possibly Alzheimer's, restless leg stuttering are all kind of collateral damage to this uh, major change uh, in our relationship to dopamine that we're seeing. What's life like today for a person who has schizophrenia? I think you talked a little bit about it, but it must be um, very difficult at times. No, it's extremely difficult. Imagine yourself, you know, you're going along okay in life. You're in high school, or you're just starting college. You know, you have a few friends, maybe you're a bit of a loner, but everything seems fine. Then suddenly everyone starts treating you as if you're weird, saying odd things. You stop caring about your appearance, kind of withdraw from people, and uh, people start noticing you saying odd things like uh, there's poison coming out of the vents or satellites are tracking me or my cell phone is bugged by the government. And it becomes clear to everyone else that something has changed and something has deteriorated a bit, but the, the schizophrenic themselves don't see it. And hmm. what happens is that they've regressed back to the type of thinking we had prior to language, which we had for millions of years, six or seven million years, before we got language. 
makes sense that this could happen to some individuals. But trying to negotiate life with that uh, primitive kind of thought process is extremely tough. And the functional expectation of the schizophrenic immediately goes down once the diagnosis is made. A lot of them end up living in supportive group homes. Uh, some don't hold jobs at all. But there is a group of what we call high-functioning schizophrenics. Uh, anyone who saw A Beautiful Mind, this was about to Jonathan Nash, who won a Nobel Prize, clearly quite schizophrenic. If you read the book, The Center Cannot Hold by Ellen Sachs, she went to uh, Oxford and Yale, repeated uh, schizophrenic breakdowns, and she convinced herself repeatedly she wasn't schizophrenic, even though she was extremely bright. And other books, uh, you know, so there is a group that are high-functioning, but on average, I would say expectation does go down when you have that diagnosis. You may not marry, you may not hold a, a job, or you might hold a menial job. Do you think sometimes we know people who have this schizophrenia going on and we don't know it? No, I think there are schizophrenics who present pretty normally. Uh, you may pick up a little um, thickness in their speech. Uh, they're not quite as adept at expressing themselves. They may be uh, kind of socially uh, unadept, but yes, they can, uh, can be there. But others are more clearly schizophrenic and in their speech and behavior demonstrated very obviously. You say that you encourage efforts um, at executive functioning uh, for schizophrenics, like studying, reading, learning a language, or going back to school. Is that important because it engages the brain? Yeah, there's something called cognitive restructuring, which is an attempt to get schizophrenics to use their higher functioning mental processes. What has happened is that, you know, as the as we develop through adolescence, uh, we learn to think, and thinking uh, goes right to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is the highest center of the brain, and it, uh, that becomes used to the input of conscious thought. But once a schizophrenic regresses to the type of thinking that we had as cave people, what one might call a neocortex, that um, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is sort of abandoned. And in fact, it's it's so sensorily deprived that it creates hallucinations just to try to maintain itself and avoid atrophy. And unfortunately, atrophy of the higher centers of the brain is fairly common with schizophrenics over time. So uh, when you do encourage them to use those functions, that expands the brain. The brain is like a muscle. The more you use it, the more it expands. The less you use it, the more it atrophies. So if you can get the schizophrenic to engage in those things, tremendous benefit and uh, chances of, re- of recovery are much greater. I always think, you know, the difference between you know, neurology and, and people will look at CAT scans of the brain and think, you know, I can find out what's wrong. But when we talk about mental illness, it's so much harder. Well, the problem is, and I've made the statement that we're kind of in the dark ages in psychiatry. We don't have a single blood test that can come up with a diagnosis, a single x-ray. We rely on what the patient tells us and perhaps what the family may tell us or the records say to come up with a diagnosis. And that can be very imprecise at times, especially given the fact that most psychiatric patients have more than one diagnosis. They may have obsessive compulsive disorder with schizophrenia. 
and they have schizoaffective disorder, which is kind of combination of schizophrenia with bipolar. So these are tricky, complex diagnoses, and all we have to rely on is what we hear from patients and families, and that creates more confusion and uh, less diagnostic accuracy. So this is going to take a lot of, of, of patients, a lot of investigation, and you say better diagnostic tools, better meds. So there's a lot that needs to happen here. Yeah, that's why I made the statement we're in the dark ages. And again, I don't want to imply that we don't help a lot of people because we do. But I think we could do a lot better. And I'm hoping that my theory is going to be somewhat of a game changer and that people will start to view mental illness differently because it really answers the questions about the basic questions about schizophrenia much better than anything else that I've heard. And I think that could refocus our research efforts and reduce stigma. Because once you know what something is, it kind of loses its uh, its fear and uh, oddness. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like people to know about, about this? Do you think that would be helpful? Well, if you do suspect that a relative is developing schizophrenia, try to get them to a psychiatrist as quickly as possible because research shows that the longer they go untreated, the worse the overall prognosis. The other thing that's helpful for families to know is that it's going to be very challenging at times to stick with these people. They don't know that they're ill. They go off their meds because they have tremendous side effects and they're going to be you know, desperate at times, using drugs or doing odd things. And uh, a lot of families abandon the schizophrenic. And research has also also shown that those schizophrenics with families that are supporting them do much better. So try to hang in there with them, despite all the ups and downs. That was psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Lesk of Minneapolis talking about his new book, Footprints of Schizophrenia, The Evolutionary Roots of Mental Illness. In addition to focusing on efforts to help people with schizophrenia, Dr. Lesk's theory could affect what we do to help people with other dopamine-related illnesses like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, Korea, Tourette's, Attention Deficit Disorder, and more. You're listening to the second half here on Siouxland Public Media. During the recent holidays, many of us consumed a lot of sugary treats. Many blame sugar cravings on lack of willpower. However, new research by Dr. Nicole Avina shows sugar is highly addictive, even more so than cocaine, 
nicotine, and alcohol. She talks about those issues and how to deal with them in her new book, Sugarless, a seven-step plan to uncover hidden sugars, curb your cravings, and conquer your addiction. Dr. Avina provides a compelling narrative about how processed foods with refined sugar can wreak havoc on one's health. You know, in the beginning of the book, you, there, there's a whole conversation about your research showing that sugar is a very addictive, highly addictive substance, uh, not much different than cocaine. And I think a lot of people would be surprised by that. You know, it's interesting because when I first started doing this research and publishing it in academic journals at that time, this was going back 20 years ago. Yes, people were shocked. And many of my colleagues actually didn't believe it. And they thought that, wow, you know, this is this is something very out of the ordinary. But we've seen over the years, so many research studies have been conducted. And there's so much evidence now that points to the fact that sugar can be addictive. It affects the brain in the way just like drugs and alcohol do. And it also causes us to engage in many of those behaviors that people who are addicted to things do, like binging, craving, withdrawal. And so it is truly an addictive substance. It's just different because it's so much more commonplace in our society and it's so much more perverse in terms of its availability. Yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of us think about sugar and think about well, what it does to our bodies, but you talk a lot about what it does to our brains. You know, it's true. We need sugar to fuel our bodies. But the reality is we don't need added sugar to fuel our bodies. Our, our bodies are really good machines, and they will make sugar for us to fuel our bodies. So if you are eating a healthy diet and don't have any added sugar, you will be just fine, and your body will be able to make the fuel that you need. And I think that a lot of people are still stuck on this idea that, oh, I have to eat all this sugar because I need it for energy. My body needs it. And that is not true. If anything, you're going to get added sugar, even if you don't try to get it, because it's hidden in so many of the different foods that we eat. So I think that, you know, focusing on the fact that when we eat these added sugars, it's affecting our brain in a way that's detrimental is really, I think, the goal of what I'm trying to convey in the messaging in the book and to help people to understand this, because this is a novel concept that, you know, sugar can be harmful to our brain and it can cause us to engage in these addiction-like responses because of what it can do to our brains. You talk a little bit about how it affects the brain and that, you know, you, you pick up something that's full of sugar and you eat it. It definitely has an effect on how you think. And there's always, we talk about this crash after we eat sugar. And that's a very real thing. Absolutely. And I think that's what keeps this addiction going is this crash. And then, you want to get out of that crash, and what's the best way to do that? Have a little bit more sugar. And so we use sugar to manage our energy levels, our moods, our feelings throughout the day. And that's how addictions work. They are able to co-opt our experiences and our emotions and make us do things that are really just designed to feed that addiction. And we see that play out throughout the day. You know, when you have something that has an added sugar in it, you know, if you're feeling a little sluggish around 3 p.m., maybe you stop and get one of those fancy coffees that has all kinds of sugar in it. It's going to, yes, give you this momentary feeling of pleasure and energy, but that's very quickly going to be followed by that crash. The better way to do it is to have something that's going to be a more sustained source of energy, something that's going to allow you to 
feel fuller longer and not cause those spikes and those lows that we experience when we have too much added sugar. To me, part of the problem is, uh, much like salt, there's so many processed foods today, um, sometimes it's hard to tell how much sugar is in something or that sugar is in something because sometimes they're in things that we wouldn't think that, that sugar is in things that we wouldn't think that it would be in. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite games to play with my students at the university where I teach is, you know, who can come up with the craziest place they found sugar where it didn't belong. And, you know, you're right. Things like bacon, things like English muffins. I mean, who would think that there's sugar in those things? But guess what? There is. And so it's found in so many different products. Yes, to sweeten them, but also it's found in many products, believe it or not, to help to mask the taste of a lot of these ingredients and preservatives that are put into the processed foods that don't taste good. So it's a way to sweeten food, but it's also a way to hide things and chemicals so that, you know, we'll still eat the product. Does it matter, say, how early you start, we start eating too much sugar, like little kids maybe who eat too much? Does that stay with you through life? Well, I like to say that nothing truly stays with you through life in the sense that you can't change. I mean, our brains are malleable. We always can change. We always can improve our health. However, we are always going to be at risk. And, you know, this even starts before children are born. It starts in the womb. And there's been a lot of research, and I talk about this in my book, Sugarless, about how exposure to sugars, even during pregnancy, can cause the offspring and the babies to then crave sugar later on. So we need to keep in mind that, you know, there's generational effects happening here. And I think our present generation of children is really feeling the brunt of it because they are being raised on sugar. I mean, the foods that are marketed towards kids that are available for children these days are by and large loaded with added sugar. And so I think that we need to be mindful of that and really help to educate our kids to make better choices, to limit their intake of added sugar, and to really change the culture around it. And let's get away from using it as a reward and make it something that is truly a treat that's once in a while. In the book, you talk about the three S's that are the key to success when it comes to you know, coming off of sugar. You talk about stressors, setbacks, and social pressures, You know, feeling pressured to eat cake and cookies. And to me, some of the biggest part here is that social pressure because people bring cookies and around the holidays, there's so much food around. Um, sometimes you just, you feel like, well, I have to eat a little, but then you kind of have a little, then you want more. Right. And, you know, I think that that's part of our society's construction of the acceptability of sugar. And, you know, I think that it is difficult for many people who are trying to avoid sugar because it is so pervasive. And, you know, we see it everywhere we go. You go, you know, to an office gathering and there's going to be, you know, foods that contain sugar there. You go over someone's house and they're going to offer you dessert or a drink that has sugar in it. So if you're trying to avoid it, it can be really difficult. And again, like you said, there is that social pressure where, you know, if you say to somebody, no, I don't want any cake, they'll say, oh, come on, have a, have a little piece. It's delicious. Oh, it's, it's fine. So 
So you have to learn to navigate that. And one of the things that I walk readers through in my book is how to do that, how to respond to those social situations so that you can still stick to what you want to do, but not feel that social pressure or that guilt that comes along with having to say no. In the book, you've got some tools to help people kind of on their way to try and at least cut out, if not all of the sugar, a lot of the sugar in our diets. You've got a quiz to help people evaluate uh, our level of sugar addiction, a food diary, uh, tips for improvement. Uh, so there are a lot of things we can do to kind of go toward a healthier life with less sugar. Absolutely. And that's really the goal of the book is to give people the tools so that they can make the changes that they want. And so, you know, whether it's understanding about how sugar works in the brain and how it affects us or helping people to, you know, really just get some practical tips on how to navigate our sugar-centric society or preparing some of the recipes that I have in the book that are all sugar-free and ways in which you can enjoy foods that you love without all that added sugar. It's, I think, a great resource for anyone who's looking to reduce the sugar in their diet and learn more about how they can have a healthier life when they do so. And I don't know if there's something that can be answered, but uh, often we thought salt was the worst white substance in our lives. You know, we call it the white death. But we need salt to live like we need sugar. But is, is it the same kind of thing, like cutting down, cutting out stuff, finding the salt in foods? I think that sugars become the new salt. <laughs> and, you know, I think that it's replaced salt in many of the processed foods, to be quite honest. If you look at a lot of the processed foods now that used to be inundated with salt, now sugar has taken over that role. So I think much like we've been pretty successful at reducing our salt intake through awareness, we need to now do the same thing with sugar. And the thing about sugar that makes it so much more difficult than salt is that we have this innate proclivity to like it. it we, we're, it's delicious. <laughs> and so it is difficult. That was Dr. Nicole Avina talking about her new book, Sugarless, a seven-step plan to uncover hidden sugars, curb your cravings, and conquer your addiction. Dr. Avina compares sugar to cocaine when it comes to its addictive qualities. Well, that's it for the first edition of the second half here on Siouxland Public Media. Tune in Friday at 1030 when Siouxland Public Media's Brett Hayworth presents a preview of Monday's Iowa caucuses. Join us then. Thanks to Brett, Mark Munger, and Steve Smith. I'm Mary Hartnett. We'll see you on Friday.